All right, so I guess we can all turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, and resume going through our section here, Practical Theology. We're going to do something Let's see here. I'm looking over my notes here because there's some things that I really left out that I wanted to cover last week that I did not cover. But remember Ephesians 4, um, we're looking at verses, what is it? Verse, I think, uh, 17 to 24, right? And we're looking at personal, personal piety. And what I've done is talk about um, and today we're going to be looking at verses, uh, I think it's 20 to 24. Uh, we're going to keep going through a comparison between really what, what we did last week. But last week we focused on a definitive break of sin. And this week we're going to look at a comparison uh, between the old man, right? The old man, some translations will say old self, like the NASB, right? And what? The new man, right? The new man or the new self. And as a matter of fact, what I want to do is I want to do old man here. I had a friend, his worship, his, he had, a, he had a, a band. It was called Old Man Down. And I think he, what he was trained is that the old man is down. <laughs> um, and then the new man. And what I want to do is I want us to put certain things in the scripture in these categories, right, of either old or new man. Uh, I suppose before we do that, let me just pray one more time for us and pray that God will bless our time together. Yes, ma'am. Oh, stop. I do. No, I want to pray first. (laughs) Trisha's trying to get me to tell a joke. I don't joke. Actually, I do joke quite a bit, but... Let's pray. Okay. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for your grace and mercy, Lord. I pray that you would uh, bless our time now. And uh, we pray that you would be pleased, Lord, to mature us, to cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, to be renewed and conformed, not only in our thinking, but in our doing, in our lives practically. We pray that all the theology that we learn, that we talk about, that it would have a practical outlet in the way that we live in the way that we think about everything in life, uh, that everything in this life, that we would have a, a biblical worldview about it. And wherever our thoughts are not in keeping with your revelation, we ask that you would graciously grant us repentance and, and help us to, 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 to think rightly about every issue, every matter of life. Even as we'll get into uh, Ephesians eventually, talking about everything from the sphere of not only our personal piety, but... Um, just the sphere of, of family and child rearing and work and society, culture. We pray that you would just help us to have uh, a biblical view of all these things for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, um, yeah, so what I wanted to do is just quickly talk about the fact that uh, definitive uh, uh, sanctification or having a definitive break with sin, I didn't do this last week, but I wanted to do that is just show you once again, because I think this is the way that we really need to do practical theology 
is we need to understand that all of the imperatives, right, uh, all of the things in practical theology that ought to be, that they're all rooted in the indicatives, right? So where is, where is a definitive break with sin? Where is that rooted? Where is that grounded in the indicative parts of, let's say, Ephesians, right? Um, and I would say we need to go to Ephesians chapter 2 because there we sort of have, um, you know, the statements that we need for uh, not only a break with sin, but, uh, you know, but understanding that our break with sin is by virtue of our union with Christ. Uh, and that's a very, very important. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you know this passage very well. If you've been studying the word for any length of time, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, um, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, that's all that language is very interesting because it's going to find parallels in Ephesians chapter four. So this indicative section is going to find imperative uh, a correlation as we go to chapters four through six. But here, um, you know, it's the same thing. It's this definitive break with sin that he's talking about in which you formerly walked, right? So he's talking about the old man. He's talking about the old self, the old life, right? And he says, according to the course of this world. Now, notice that, folks. I mean, really let that sink in deep, right? That our world, the world around us follows a certain course, right? And what does that mean, right? The course of this world. Uh, I think it just means something like, you know, the world's bent, the world's direction, um, ultimately, I guess I would say, you know, the fallen world system that we live in, right? That's what he's talking about. According to the prince of the power of the air, which that is a reference to Satan, who in a sense is controlling and influencing this evil world system that we live in. Any doubt of that, just turn on the television, watch the news for a little bit. It says, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So it's not just that we live in a world whose direction is fallen, and who's influenced by the evil one himself, but that those that follow after the course of the world are referred to as sons of disobedience. Uh, whenever it says something like that, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, you know, all of that, these are just strong designations to say that these people are chiefly characterized by this wrath, disobedience, you know, all of these things. Uh, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Oh, very good. <clears throat> yeah, very good. Yeah, the, the, the prince of the power of the air. The air there is sort of synonymous to the, I guess we can say, is to the, the course of the world, the sort of the atmosphere of our, of the fallen system that we live in. It's, yeah, the age, the spirit of the age. It's kind of synonymous with the spirit of the age. It's sort of the bent of the evil world, the present evil age that we live in. It's sort of the, the inclination of this present evil age. That's what? Fundamentally antichrist, right? So the spirit of the air is just a way to speak of, um, you know, yeah, just the, 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 the atmosphere of sin that we live in. Yeah. Same thing. I think it's synonymous. Yeah, these are kind of synonymous terms, you know. They're all kind of ultimately, they're all referring to the same thing which is what Galatians 1.4 says is the present evil age, right? And these are just manifestations of it. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 
Absolutely right. That's right. And children of wrath, actually, if you look at the commentaries on that, <clears throat> what that what that ultimately speaks of is somebody devoted to wrath by God, right? They're children of wrath in the sense of this is it's 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 a very it's a very vivid way of saying that they're born for wrath. I mean, it's like this, right? Unless they repent, right? This is their, this is their, this is the life ahead of them is wrath. It's like they're being devoted to the wrath of God. You know what I mean? It's very powerful language. Yes, yes, sir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's almost like this is the opposite of what it means to be, you know, uh, uh, predestined and chosen for adoption, right? Same sonship language, but it's going the other way around. I'm not saying that this is necessarily a reference to double predestination or something like that, at least not in this text, right? But it's definitely saying that those who walk in the flesh, right, that their purpose right now is that the wrath of God abides upon them, right? They're, they're, they're sort of going to illustrate God's wrath by the way they live. And so, you know, again, we were that, but he says, look at verse three, among them too, all, uh, among them, we too, uh, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Be very careful there because uh, hyper-Calvinism is a theology that some have tried to suggest. What they would say is that, you know, as uh, believers, because of our election, we never truly were children of wrath. We never truly were God's enemies. We were never truly in that state. That's false. Because the bi- because what they would say is that we were, since we were eternally united with Christ, through union with Christ, then, then God never really saw us as his enemies. There's a problem with that is that the Bible teaches a state transfer that we went from one state to another, that we were in the sphere of unbelief, sin and condemnation, and that God transferred us into a different sphere. So that's false theology. That's a hyper Calvinistic tendency. I just thought I would point it out in case you encounter it in some table fellowship somewhere. Says, but God being rich in mercy, you know, where am I at? No, no, verse three, lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh. Remember that? We, I mean, that's the parallel. Look back at chapter four. So this is very much bouncing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, remember? Because look at chapter four as he describes those who, the Gentiles, by the way, who are the Gentiles in Ephesians four, verse 17 here? Who are the Gentiles? Who are the Gentiles refer to? Right, so you have two. Okay, you guys, we need to have a little debate here. <laughs> so, so, so that's why I asked the question: What does the word "gentile" in this verse, verse seventeen? What does that mean? And because the word "gentile" does refer to anyone who's not a Jew, however, by the time it reaches some of these contexts with Paul, the word "gentile" becomes synonymous for unbeliever. Right, because what is a Gentile? A Gentile is called a Gentile because he is outside of the covenant community of God's people. Right, the the, the Gentile symbolizes the 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 sphere of the profane, uh, those who are not ceremonially clean. You see, they're not in. They haven't gone through circumcision. They haven't gone through ritual. You know, they haven't been uh, converted to Judy to 
to the Jewish faith, right? So they're outside of God's blessings, you know, uh, commonwealth of Israel, all of that. But by the time it hits some of these, you know, uh, uh, passages in Galatians and Ephesians and other places, Gentile is essentially synonymous for anyone who is, watch this now, not outside of the nation Israel, outside of Christ. See how that works now? So there's been a covenantal shift in the mind of Paul that no longer is your Gentile status determined on whether or not you belong to the Jewish nation. <laughs> now it, it, it depends on whether or not you belong to Christ. Really amazing. Who is the true Israel of God in the Bible. You know, so anyway, that's a whole other theological direction, but I th- just thought I would point that out. So, uh, uh, of course, um, we see the break with sin in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive, here it is, together with him. Right? So, you have different prepositions that speak of union with Christ. In, right? Uh, with, right? Um yeah, maybe even by sometimes in a certain context, uh, something like that, right? Um, that's all speaking of, you know, it could be either phrases like in him, in Christ, right? The, these kind of, these are actual biblical phrases that communicate to us the doctrine of union with Christ, which how many of you studied soteriology, let's say, from a systematic theology or something like that? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, and don't be too shy. <laughs> right? So when you study soteriology, it's very important for you to understand that union with Christ is essentially the most important doctrine in all of soteriology. And there I'm quoting John Murray, one of the greatest, theolo- probably the greatest theologian of the 20th century, if you don't know him. And he wrote his little book, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied, that I've plugged here in this church probably a thousand times. Chris Bess is like, yeah. uh, uh, uh." (laughs) But because he shows how union with Christ really controls everything in salvation. It's really marvelous. It's just really, really marvelous. So, okay, so I just wanted to point that out, um, just talking about, you know, the indicative, the imperative, and how a break with sin is really rooted and grounded in our union with Christ and those kinds of things, okay? So now we come to a comparison of the old man and the new man. We want to read verses 20 to 24, and that's kind of where we left off last time. Somebody want to read that for us? Anybody? Lynn, you want to read that? 20 to 24? Thank you. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth <clears throat> that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is corrupted in accordance with the lust of, of deceit, and is being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's really amazing there, um, for several reasons. But, um, I, what I want to do is ask you, what, what do these two categories represent? Old, old man, new man. What are these representative of? Okay, so somebody says salvation, so where do we put salvation? Right? So, salvation belongs here. So, as you, what else? What does this represent? 
Okay, so that's right. I mean, I can list all these, right? So somebody mentioned Adam. So I would say Adamic sin, right, or something like that. We could even say Adamic headship, federalism, or however you want to say that. Uh, somebody mentioned condemnation, right? Uh, judgment, we could even say, right? Judgment. Um, and, and so you're, you're getting this, right? What about the new man? What else? Salvation, what else is over here? What else goes here? What is it? Life? Oh, very good. So what goes here? Exactly. See what's going on here? So what's happening is that when Paul is talking about old man, new man, he's talking about two different spheres, right? This is one sphere, and this is one sphere. This is the sphere, the sphere we could say, of sin and unbelief, right? I mean, to put it, and this is the sphere of salvation. So that's what we're looking at in these categories. Look at the way that he contrasts this here in terms of the old man and the new man and the way that he characterizes both of these, right? So for example, the old man, he says, is undergoing corruption, right? Uh, Look at uh, verse, uh, where is that at? Uh, Verse 22, yeah. He says that in reference to your former manner of life, see that's a manner of life, it's a lifestyle, it's a way of living, right? You lay aside the old self, there it is, which is being, watch this, corrupted in accordance with lust of deceit. So it's undergoing corruption. So that's what's going on under the old man. Why is that important that we, what do you think? See, because he he used the word, right, um, what does he say? It's a participle, and it's literally, yeah, being corrupted. Uh, so let me put what he says, right? It's being corrupted, right? So what, is, what does this tell us here, being corrupted? When we say something is being, what are we saying? It's ongoing. This is a process, right? And where is it headed? Corruption. Right, so it's undergoing a process of corruption. So think about that. Right, I mean, this is we talk about magnifying the grace of God. When you understand you were in this process, you were in this fear prior to Christ, you were undergoing corruption. Uh, what it tells us, therefore, is that this sphere is not. It, it, it's, it's not. Not only is it not neutral. Right, but it's actually active. Right, this, there's there's a progression here. There's a progression, and that progression um, is ultimately heading to perdition. Right, same thing with with this. Right, so that's undergoing corruption. What about the new man? Look at the verses. What's what's that undergoing? Exactly, renewal. What does he say? Renewal of what? Okay, renewal of mind uh does this remind you of anything being renewed in our mind what about this what happens to the mind over here futile remember that see how paul is building the contrast here very powerful antithesis right the antithesis is that under the old man you have a futile mind right under the new man your mind is being renewed being renewed so just like being corrupted being renewed what are some other how about this how about the old self 
we could say is rooted in what? Uh, rooted, rooted in, what's the way that I put Oh, yes, that's right, because the word is there. Deception. You see that? Where did I find that in the text? Exactly. And this is rooted in what? Rooted in what? Where's that in the text? That's right. What does it say? Well, a couple times, right? It says a couple things. Created in, in righteousness and holiness of the truth. But didn't he say even earlier? Yeah, that's the what's one. And then verse 20, right? But you did not learn Christ in this way. 21, I'm sorry. If you indeed have heard of him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in him, right? In Jesus. The truth is in Jesus, right? So over here, the old man is rooted in the lust of deceit. And over here, the new man is rooted in the truth of Jesus Christ. Rooted in truth. It's beautiful because what this is saying is that once a person transfers from one realm to the other from one sphere to the other you are no longer undergoing deception but we are now in what the light right and we are to walk as children of light whereas over here you are in darkness um is there any other passages of scripture that you can think of that gives us essentially the same sort of old new man antithesis yes sir let's go there colossians chapter 3 if you are counseling each other if you are counseling someone if you're seeking to disciple someone in the church and you just think this person needs basic christian discipleship about how do you live the christian life right i would encourage you Go to Colossians 3 as your paradigm, right? Verses 1 through 12. And, I mean, you can go further and further than that. But you see this exact exact same phenomenon going on here. Look at verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, notice with Christ is union with Christ language, right? Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, wow, think about that, guys, right? It would be an interesting study to see. Well, what does Paul mean when he says Christ, who is your life? Notice this is an assumption. He doesn't say with Christ, who ought to be your life, right? He says Christ, who is our life. Right, so our whole the whole trick of Christianity—I hate to call it that—but you know what I mean. The phenomenon, the dynamic, is that we try to live that out right there. What does Paul say? Right, Philippians one twenty-one: "To live is Christ, and to die is gain." Galatians two twenty. That's right. What does that say? No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me, right? That's right. Anyway, this is like a Bible B class right here. (laughs) That's right. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I left them hanging. 
Robert's that that's a caution. Robert's like, watch your jokes. No, it's a good, a good uh, clean uh, Christian uh, joke. Um, I knew a pastor. He would start every sermon with a joke. I, I'm not even. That's not a joke. He would start every sermon with a joke. It drove me crazy. Anyway, um, what Trisha's talking about is a joke that I heard about a guy who was had a church growth method, and he. It's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, he he was he was trying to grow his church, and he was running with a buddy. And he's saying, man, my church is so small and your church is so big. What am I doing wrong? You know, it's like, well, you know, I do different types of things. You know, like, for example, next week, I'm going to be revealing the identity of Paul's father. You know what I mean? Oh, no, no. He's going to be revealing the identity of the of the, of the person who the, of the thief on the cross that died with, with Christ. Right. And he says, yeah. And he says, how do you know that? He says, well, it's Paul's father, Paul's father. He says, yes, because Paul says my old man was crucified with Christ. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, one of the one of the thieves, yeah, he's I know. Yeah, see that's why I don't tell jokes. I mean you guys laughed, but I don't think I'm any good at it, but that was good. <laughs> Keep them coming? No. Not gonna happen. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. That's right. Okay, let's keep going here. Verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body dead to immorality. Somebody have an ESV, please. Who's got the elect standard version? Uh, Brian, read, read verse 5, Brian. Yeah, how does it start again, the first couple words? Put to death. That's different than the NASB. In his piece says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Uh, I like the ESV. I, I think it brings out the imperative much stronger. And the word that he uses there is definitely kill. The word is kill. Kill what is earthly in you. Look at that. I mean, severity, right? The Puritans would write on severity, you know, uh, that we we don't give the flesh any uh, advantage, any any occasion. And so, yeah, that's right. So, Put to death all of these things, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. And in them also uh, you once walked when you were living in them. And talk about a break with sin. But you all, but you also, watch this, put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside, watch this, the old self. The old self with its evil practices. And then he says, and you have put on what? The new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A lot of people, when they ask the question, what is the image of God about? Right? You take any systematic theology, you take Wayne Grudem or something like that, and you study the image of God, right? The Imago Dei. And a lot of times they'll tell you, well, the image of God means that we are like God in many respects. Uh, we can rationalize, uh, we, we are, you know, relational creatures, you know, we're cognitive creatures. So we, 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 being in the image of God means we share his communicable attributes, you know, those kinds of things. But some, you know, um, have really debated, like, is the image of God specifically, though, honing in on the, the, the idea of knowledge, right, because of verses like this, right? It's being uh, renewed to a true knowledge, Right, so does it mainly have to do with our uh, epistemic 
makeup. So anyway, I just thought I'd point that out. That's a that's an interesting study in systematic theology. He says a renewal in which there is no distinction uh, between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, uh, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, humility, or, uh, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, uh, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So all of these put off, put on uh, aspects of, of all of this. Um, let's see here. Okay, let's go back to Ephesians uh, chapter 4 because let's just walk slowly through now um, Paul's language of the new man and see if we can't make some sense out of where he's going with all of this, okay? He says in verse 20, this is where we're picking up, Chapter 4, verse 20, he says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, meaning according to the sinful traits, the vices of the old man. He says, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus. Now, what does that mean? When he says, notice what he says. If indeed you have heard him. He doesn't say if indeed you have heard about him. Right? He says, he says about him, it says about him. That's an interpretation. Uh, the Greek is pretty literal, just you have heard him. He's a direct object. There is no about. And the bad thing about the ESV, sorry, you mentioned it, <laughs> is that it doesn't italicize. So it doesn't tell you that that word is actually not in the original, which I don't like that. You know what I mean? I want to know, is that original or not? You know, does anybody else have a translation differs in that about him or in him? Anybody have a King James? Anybody have an NIV? Anybody has anything like that? No, no. Yeah, we've got some pretty good solidarity in here. Let's put the ESV people on the left and let's put the NAS people on the right. <laughs> right. Who's got King James? Oh no no that's okay that's okay. Yeah I know I've got logos here I I could I could do it as well but that's yeah that's right it's Alton uh, Ekusate you have heard him period uh, there's no such word as about him Alton Ekusate in auto edas theite it means uh, him you have heard and in him you have been taught. Uh, with a passive, uh, with a passive tense verb there, and it's actually a perfect tense verb, I think, which means it's like a definitive having been taught in Him. So, what is this language about? This language, in my opinion, is speaking about regeneration, right? Uh, being taught in Him is a term that speaks of, or excuse me, hearing Him and being taught uh, in Him. I think is all language of conversion. Turn to John chapter six. Uh, John chapter 6, I think you see a similar phenomenon and it shows us the depth of the background of this language, right? Um, it says, <clears throat> verse 44, James White's favorite verse in all the Bible, chapter, right? 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, what is that language of drawing? It's what Robert said. It's the call, right? It's not the external call, right? So there's two aspects of the call. External, what does that refer to? Or what is another word for external? General, that's right. Right? And then there's the internal, right? And the effectual. Yikes. Oh, no, I butchered that one. Sorry. Sorry. I wish I could write like R.C. Sproul. I really do. He's got that perfect handwriting up there, you know. It drives me crazy because, anyway. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, that's right. So there's two aspects to the gospel call. External, general call. That is the call that goes to who? Everyone, indiscriminately. Just to come back to hyper-Calvinism again, right? This is the problem that the church has had with hyper-Calvinism is that some extreme Calvinists will go to the degree to say, no, no, you don't even give the general call unless you see signs that the person is being drawn or, or, or that there's God is working in their heart and that they're, you know, that, that God is actually doing some sort of what they what ultimately came down to be known as signs of election. Right. If unless you see signs of election, you don't even share the external general calls. So anyway, it's not not a good position to take. And <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, that's what Spur- that's why Spurgeon said what he said. Right. And then the ir- internal effectual call. This is what has happened to all who have been saved and converted and born again of God. You were called internally. That's what this is talking about, that you were drawn by the father. And that drawing is a powerful, effectual drawing. Right. It's not like God is, you know, it's, you know, it's not like Jesus sitting on the door of your heart and knocking out, you know, please let me in. You know what I mean? Being the perfect cosmic gentleman. No, that's not what that is. Right. This is a powerful, effectual call that actually results in salvation, actually results in salvation. I mean, I was called, you know, for 19 years. I was called. I heard it here and there and everywhere. You know what I mean? I used to work at Thrifties. You guys know Thrifties? It's California. I used to scoop ice cream at Thrifties. Anyway, we won't go there. But I used to work at Thrifties, and I had this radical Christian manager, and he would preach to me all the time, be like, oh, "Enough, enough, enough." You know what I mean? I just want to go party for the weekend. And this guy's just like preaching at me every day. You know what I mean? And the sad thing is, Trish, is that I never got to thank him afterwards because uh, he was such a dear, dear now brother he had some uh, special needs kids and he just was such a humble man and he just convicted me i'd go out you know just like every other time i'd just be out in the world and i'd have that guy in my head you know what i mean like he'd be in there like a little birdie like your office manager you know is watching you you know (laughs) and so i heard I heard the external general call of the gospel all the time. My stepfather would witness and Keith would share the gospel with me, share the gospel with me. I remember Keith one time asked me, I was heading out for the weekend to go, you know, do what ought not be done. And I remember Keith telling me, hey, if you died right now, where do you think that you would go? I don't even know if he remembers this, but I said, hell, absolutely, 100%, no doubt about it. You know what I mean? What's that? I still went. Yeah. 
yeah, brazenly, right? Heading right to perdition. And then I heard the internal call of the gospel one night, um, which Keith remembers that too. <laughs> I went, I ran to my stepdad because I didn't know, I didn't know a single Christian on earth. I didn't know one Christian that I could go to except for my stepdad, right? And, and so I, I flew to him. I'd be like, tell me about the cross. I just, I need to find the cross. I don't even know where a church is at. I don't even know where to go. Where do I go to find a Christian? I didn't know. I was completely clueless. So I went to him because God was internally, finally drawing me to himself powerfully. And it was what the reformers would call irresistible. It, or some would even call it overcoming grace because it finally overcame all of this. Right? And all that you can add to this, it finally overcame all of that. Hey, man, think about the miracle of that, right? Like, there should be nothing that can take you away from all of this. The corruption, the lusts, the deceit, the deception, the darkness, the futility, you know, all of this. There should be nothing that can overpower. But I'm telling you, that's why, like some would say, being born again is a miracle. So people say, like, do we see miracles today? I am of the persuasion that the new birth is a miracle that we experience today that is ongoing. Some people wouldn't characterize it as, and you know, I would make the case, it's like, what are you talking about? I mean, this is the greatest miracle of all. The analogy of the new birth is what? To creation. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses four through six, right? It is the, the, the analogy of what corresponds to the new birth is the God who said, let there be light, is the God who's shown in our hearts the light of the gospel, of the glory, Christ, you know, all of that. Right? So, anyway. Yes, sir. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, I got a little off track, as I always do, but if you go back to verse 45... And you start, the reason why I really focused on the drawing part, though, is because it's going to become clear what he's talking about, because this is sort of a parallel. He says, because look at this drawing work of God, what is it? It's actually what the prophets talked about. He says, as it is written, the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. You see that? Everyone who has what? Heard. You see that? Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So what I'm saying is that when Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4, and he says, if you have heard him, and then what does it say? And if you have, oh, where am I at? I'm in Corinthians, yikes. (laughs) And have been taught in him, right? So I would say if the teaching refers to being taught the objective message of the gospel, hearing him is referring to the internal call of the gospel. That's the way that I would put it. So any questions, comments, statements, any exegetical questions on the text or anything like that? This is phenomenal, right? I mean, really, I mean, the the, the small epistles here, I mean, this is the la crema la creme of the Apostle Paul. I mean, this is this is it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Correct. Exactly. Yes, sir. Perfect, perfect passage. Perfect parallel. 
My sheep hear my voice, right? Uh, what's another one? Hebrews, right? Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter three, chapter four. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the day when they, the day of rebellion, right? Right. right. What's that? Matthew 11. Matthew 11. There's learn from me, right? That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, how about another really interesting phrase as we move from maybe regeneration? Uh, and, and really, that's what we're doing. I didn't give you guys my little outline I have that I'm looking at. But in, in one sense, we're looking at the regeneration, uh, right, of the new man. And then the renewal. You guys know what that is. That's renewal. Right of the new man, and then I guess the last thing is the evidence, right? And that's really where he's going with all of this, is that there's evidence for all of this. So the other one then is renewal. So the way that I put it was that it's the rege- regeneration of the new man, and then there's the ep- epistemic renewal of the new man. And I just had to throw that big word in there because that is what he's saying. Look at what he's saying here in verse 21 he says if indeed you have heard him been taught in him just as the truth is in jesus that in reference to your former manner of life you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted according in accordance with the lust of deceit now uh, okay notice before we get to this renewal notice the verb here um that you lay aside the old self so he's talking to Christians, right? So this is an ongoing uh, experience of the Christian life. This continual, you could even say the present tense active, continual laying aside, right? That's what it is. You're constantly having to rid yourself of the vices of the old man. Anybody testify to that? Amen. Right? The church say amen because you're constantly having to empty yourself of the vices of the old man it's a constant thing right this is the act of sanctification right here um and if you guys have anything to say about that please don't fear interrupting yes sir so no this and so what i'm saying before we got to that i just wanted to point out uh where he says lay aside the old self that that is a present active uh sort of imperative you know idea that this is an obligation that's an ongoing ob- obligation that we have in sanctification that's what I'm, I'm i'm suggesting that so it's not just definitive break with sin but it is also an ongoing uh, phenomenon right that we're dealing with landon um so could that be translated as that you are to put off that word kata meaning like, like according to mm-hmm. that which is according to the former manner of the old man correct which yeah Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly right. The laying the laying aside. And here's what's interesting is that this verb idea is actually a middle voice. Which anytime the anytime the authors use a middle voice like that, you have you always have to question why does he use the middle voice? This is why God ordained the New Testament in Greek and not Hebrew. Hebrew doesn't have some of these categories. 
It's, you know, Hamelech went to the city. I mean, it's very simple. You know, there's no, he went to the city and he was kind of continually going. The Hebrew doesn't give you that, right? The Greek, however, is very nuanced. It has middle voice, passive voice, active voice, right? It has all these tenses and all these moods that go into one word, so you've got to parse it all down, and it's chaos in class, right? <laughs> Lynn's learning that right now. He's doing a lot of Greek studies. It's terrible to have to memorize all this stuff, but it's precious and it's priceless once you get it because you understand that when something is in the middle voice, right, in the middle voice, it, it's as if the agent that is speaking, it's something like that the action is taking place and it has sort of a reflexive effect. It, it, it's something that comes back to you, right? So, so it's almost like what they, were, what they say is that this is a action that we are responsible for and that happens to, you know, it's going to have an effect directly upon the person that is doing it for himself, right? But, but, but I would say probably even more is that the onus is on you. That's what Paul is emphasizing with the middle voice is that you're the one that has to do it. You know, it's, it's a very interesting thing. So you're not going to find the middle voice when it talks about things like, you know, yeah, well, it just, yeah, exactly. Like soteriological things like, you know, those who he justified, he also glorified. That's all past tense or uh, that's all passive voice, right? Those are, those are voices that have nothing to do with our action. We're not the one doing it, right? But this is, lay aside is saying you have the personal responsibility to do this for yourself. It's very heavy. Um, and so, we go from there to let's go to um, the renewal statement because it's a, it's really an interesting phrase. He says, "Which is being corrupted according to, uh, with the lust of deceit." Verse twenty three, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And so then the question becomes, what is the spirit of your mind? Right, right. What 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 what, what is the word spirit? Uh, referring to because the greek word can either refer to the holy spirit or it can refer to um the spirit of man uh which means something like man's disposition right you all know what i mean by disposition your attitude your bent your inclination Right, that kind of thing. Uh, it's a really interesting phrase, and if you do any study on this whatsoever, you'll find that the literature is full of, you know, sort of. Okay, there's there's those that try to argue for the Holy Spirit view, right? But but what's wrong with interpreting this as a reference to the Holy Spirit? Anybody see a problem with it? That's right. So how it's almost like how is the Holy Spirit? Of your mind. Exactly. So that association is very difficult to overcome. You see what I'm saying? So I think this is definitely a lowercase s, and it refers to the human disposition, and we are called to be renewed in the disposition of our mind. Um, and so what does it mean? Let's, let's take just the whole phrase now. What does the whole phrase mean, the spirit of your mind? What do we want to say that's talking about? And give me some evidence or give me some examples of what this would be referring to the spirit of your mind yes sir 
Okay. Okay. So your will, right? The human will, right? So it has like a volitional, right? Uh, so it has like a volitional component. What, what was that? Yes, sir. Okay, so yeah, so okay, so you're saying it it has, so I, I like what you're saying because it definitely has a moral component, right? So there's a volitional component now. Now there's a moral component to the spirit of the mind, right? So what 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 else? What else are? Give me some examples. Give me some examples of how you were ever renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's what I want to know. Right? Being renewed in it. Well, you just, you're asking the same question, but I want a, a tangible example. Yes, sir. Mm. Wow. So you went from self-righteousness right, as being sort of the default tendency of your mind, <laughs> right, attitude of your mind, yeah, to selflessness, to self-abasement, right, and to humility, right, which is exactly what's going on with the old and new man. You can put self-righteousness over here and humility over here, so which shows you that you have been transferred from one realm to the other, one state to the other, one sphere to the other, you know what I mean, and it very much has to do with epistemic renewal. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, I think so. I think it I think I think it very much is that which informs your worldview, right? Um we we did a we, we kinda tested we're thinking about using this footage from UNT um, for something. We went around asking students, um, uh, uh, do you know what a worldview is and what is your worldview? Do you know that probably, I don't know, Trish, what, 99% of the students, they didn't know, they didn't know what a worldview was and they didn't have a worldview, right? Some girl said, what did she say, Trish? Well, I viewed a lot of the world. I mean, I've traveled. She said that. I mean, I'm not even kidding. This is a college student. You know what I mean? She said, I've traveled. I've been a lot of places, you know. <laughs> but, you know, most people don't even know that they have a, 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 a worldview for good or bad. I mean, they don't know what their basic worldview is. So now what we're saying is that, yes, renewing the spirit of your mind means that you have a change of will and a change of morality. Your basic worldview, your outlook of life is, is, is being renewed, right? Um, the reformers spoke of a Christian world and life view, right? We change the way we view the, our life and the world around us and that we are to continually renew our thinking in these areas. It's very exhaustive and um, 
It's very far-reaching. Uh, so then, last of all, what I would say as evidence evidence of the new man and evidence that you're being renewed, I would say it's very simple. It's what we read in Colossians chapter 3. It's all those evidences. When it comes to evidence of this internal spiritual renewal, what is the go-to passage? Oh, wow. See, I'm thinking... See, I'm... <laughs> okay, I should have said, what are the go-to passages? <laughs> right? Who, who said Galatians? I was thinking Galatians. I've written it down. What, what, what are you thinking there, Three. Russell? Uh-huh. Galatians 5 with reference to what? Um, the, the flesh is against the spirit, against, um, against the flesh. And then the evidence is that... The evidence... Correct. So it's, these are the deeds of the flesh, right? That's where Paul goes. And then he says, this is the fruit of the spirit, right? And the fruit of the spirit is this, all of these things. And, and that's it. I mean, that's, that's evidence right there that you have gone from one state to, to another, one sphere to another. Does your life, this is very simple, but very convicting, right? Does your life have the fruit of the spirit or not? Do you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness? And there's so many, pra- and we could say, okay, well, we have these different virtues, and we might be tempted to personalize and internalize these things to such a degree that we would say, well, you mean like, do I ever have joy? Well, yeah, of course. But I think we need to be more specific than that. Like, I think we should work almost from the from backwards, right? Like, what what things in my life suggest that I'm not walking in joy, peace, love, kindness, gentleness, you know, what are, what are some things? Do I love the brethren? Uh, do I love, you know, do I love, uh, you know, being kind and, and being faithful? And do I love being patient with people? I tell you right now, Eden is, she's got a t-shirt on every day. Do you have the fruit of the spirit? Because <laughs> you need patience, dad, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Kids will test your patience. You know what I mean? But so will everything else. So will your brethren. Um, Anyway, we're so out of time.